Hello, I'm Chris. And I'm Sean. And this is Monsters and Mythos, a podcast where we take a look at the monsters and races of Dungeons and Dragons and compare them to their mythological and folklore counterparts. Today we will be discussing the Goblin, one of, if not arguably, the most used battle creature in D&D. Oh yeah, uh, common uh, yet yeah, terrible foes within the, the various realms, goblins. Uh, what makes these kind of creatures so popular in gaming? Why, why such a common encounter in, in campaigns and, and one-shots alike? It's, it's just something we're just going to have to talk out. Exactly. I mean, it's easy to just grab a dozen and, okay, I'll create a one-shot, base it all around, you know, role-playing or something, and then, oh, here's a goblin attack. Because they're just so versatile and <laughs> can be used in almost any circumstance. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's kind of uh, one of the talking points today. So, as usual, we start with the uh, Dungeons & Dragons take upon it, as more than likely that's where most of our listeners would be uh, coming from. So, Sean, if you would please. Okay, so, <laughs> as we do a dive into the Goblin race uh, you know, throughout D&D, &D, uh, it, in its relation to Dungeons & Dragons, it's important to keep in mind that, with few exceptions... Most editions regard them as enemies or adversaries. Not a lot of friendly, happy-ending, knight-in-shining armor goblin types, you know. <laughs> Typically described uh, roughly three-foot-ish humanoid monsters, cowardly yet resourceful. Often relying on ambush tactics, overwhelming numbers, and mostly doing what others refer to as fighting dirty. Uh, often described as having langly, ropey arms that hang to their knees, having various shades of red and yellow eyes, and, and skin that varies usually from hues of orange to yellow or even deep red. This, of course, accompanied by pointy ears and a mouthful of sharp fangs, arguably scary in its own right. Uh, so one of the reasons uh, you know, goblins are such a common encounter, I think, is kind of what you just mentioned already. Is It's the versatility in which they can be applied to, to like a narrative. Uh, if left to their own devices, the strongest, smartest, or, or most cunning of the tribe will, will likely lead them to a place, say from outsiders, that, that may have ample raiding or, or, or thieving opportunities, which is... Which, you know, it can be a problem in and of itself, you know, often considered the scourge of, of civilized lands. Uh, uh, another thing mentioned in various editions of the Monster Manual is that these cowardly creatures are often bullied into servitude by larger, more powerful creatures. Uh, often either captured or bullied into uh, surprisingly capable minions if given enough direction. Um, also, they are easy to adapt to a narrative kind of like you were saying you know a few, few examples would be like maybe you're you have an ice setting so you need ice goblins maybe you're in a volcano you need some fire goblins you know maybe you're in the Feywild and you need something weird like some honey goblins or some wheat goblins you know it, it, it's easy to switch this beastie to fit the scene you know uh, a light variation to skin color maybe a, maybe an element of resilience or two and, and bam you know something narratively pleasing you know ish uh, what, what do you think Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. It's 
when you follow even the folklore, they are almost everywhere. And while they do have certain home elements, I mean, they are found in woods, they are found in mountains, they are found in towns and cities. And I do think it is that smaller size as well as the just numbers. I mean, okay, we want a small encounter, let's throw five. Oh, we want a bigger encounter, let's throw ten. And they make really good uh, minions for that reason. You just kill a bunch of them and progress your story or just level up your characters through that. Right, right. That's kind of, you know, that was kind of, uh, you know, and how it is. It's a very common, I feel like, low to mid-level level kind of encounter. But, um, okay, so here's here's what I really wanted to get into into the, in, in the Goblin while we're, while we're going over it. So my next talking point is something that, that may leave more questions than answers. Uh, let's talk humanoid and goblinoid for a minute. Uh, while goblins are typically described as, as humanoid, like humanoid monsters, humanoid by descriptive, descriptive means. Uh, so what does it mean to be goblinoid? You know, I, I'm assuming that it is often re referring to the categorization of, of species rather than a descriptor phrase, though it could simply be a descriptor meaning, you know, a humanoid with elongated arms as, as most that classify as goblinoid kind of carry the same trait, but, um, you know, it could also be, you know, maybe indicate, a, a dis, a, a distinct anatomical difference or two, you know, uh, maybe strictly carnivorous or, or some other own unknown dietary need, you know, or, or perhaps it's a cultural categorization, uh, defined by obvious different principles, values, expectations, and, and perspectives, you know, uh, led by distant gods from, you know, less familiar pantheons, you know, whatever it is, uh, like the goblin is to the goblinoids, uh, a representative of sorts. Uh, albeit not the most impressive one, as as the goblin is actually pretty low on the scale of hierarchy uh, of goblinoids. But we kind of talked a little bit before the show about this. Uh, uh, what are you two, your two cents on that? Well, I believe that when it comes to the D&D realm, the goblinoids include even the orcs and bugbears. And... I mean, you just look at those two, and there's nothing diminutive or weak or anything else about them. So I would definitely have to say it's got to follow that uh, certain physical characteristics uh, to associate them with. And I would say the reason it's goblinoid and not uh, probably something higher up on the food chain is just you see them. They're like rats. You know, you there might be a bigger rat hiding somewhere, but when all you do is see Earth's rats, it's that's your, going to be your frame of reference, and so that's why it's goblinoid because I, we find goblins everywhere, but the bugbears do not show up as often. So, like a, a goblinoid would be like a a, a nuisance species, uh, something uh, just just a thorn in the side of society, essentially. <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah, and you know, I thought about this for a while, and and recently, um, from what I had found, orcs have actually been uh, decategorized, uh, at least in the more modern editions, as goblinoids, uh, entirely something entirely different. Uh, but you know, 
uh, hobgoblins, goblins, and bugbears uh, of of those kind of creatures. You know, goblins are, and you know, uh, maybe even kobolds might be considered. I have to look that up. But but goblins are not very high up on the um, on the list there. You know, and I, I I was racking my brain for for like, okay, well, what what could possibly make a goblinoid different than a humanoid, other than you know, because technically they're described as you know humanoid monsters. So I, I was thinking like what would make them different i mean they so at first i thought well they're underground dwellers they're subterranean dwellers you know and but but so are dwarves dwarves aren't really considered goblinoids so i threw that one out you know maybe it's uh you know uh it's got to come down to their diet you know because one thing i i thought you know and this is all speculation of course but one thing I thought of with the humanoid races is is that you know dwarves, elves, humans, halflings, gnomes, the like of them, they could all survive on a wide variety of diets. You know, it could be dwarves might prefer red meats, but if you gave them nothing but salad, they might be grumpy, but they'd live. You know, uh, maybe the uh, goblinoid races just are uh, different anatomically. Maybe they you know are strictly carnivorous and, and uh, you know, or something along the lines of that. Like, I don't know, maybe an unknown dietary need or something that we, we haven't quite identified yet. I just, to wrap my, my mind around what makes a goblinoid different than a humanoid, like as a categorization of species, aside from, you know, possibly their temperament, like you said, you know, they're just like rats. They, they might be in a different form, but they all have this very basic, uh steal raid and kill mentality that they just you know are not genetically uh capable of mentally getting over that hurdle though they they resemble you know humanoids to an extent you know um so uh anyway <laughs> moving on um uh when we when we look through the past editions at, at the goblin uh, they seem to have kind of evolved uh, from an almost standard low to mid-level encounter and or somewhat competent henchmen uh, into masterful, skilled craftsmen of sorts. Um, while often described as cowardly or easily bullied, they are also known to be, you know, sometimes at least, very cunning and clever. Uh, it makes sense as the goblin slowly evolves through the additions from crude traps to learning ambush tactics using their terrain uh, that, that due to them constantly having to outsmart or outmaneuver their, their bigger, stronger cousins, that uh, uh, intelligence within the goblin community would suddenly be, you know, at the very least, respected. Uh, thus kind of uh, propelling the goblin forward within the goblinoid communities. Uh, from crude traps and tactics to expert tinkerers, artificers, and inventors, you know. Uh, and along with that evolution is, of course, that, you know, 5e has been a lot more inclusive towards the fantasy races, and, and goblin PCs are, are more common as, as, as player characters these days. Um, you have any two cents on that? <laughs> Well, I think the reason you're seeing people want to play it more, I mean, people like being bad guys. I mean, honestly, that's why murder hobo is a thing. So I think it's that excitement of trying a different race. Uh, and it always takes some tweaking to figure it out. Uh, but back to our goblinoid versus humanoid. Uh, I did just a quick Google search because I have a very strong... Curiosity and can't help myself sometimes. 
apparently goblinoids are just associated as the races that worshipped Maglubiet, a god of war. So they were all different cultures, different species, until he came along and conquered them all and made them worship him. So they're associated by proxy. Ah, see, so it is some sort of, you know, a, a pantheon-related thing. See? Hey, you taught me something today again, already. And okay. you, you haven't even got into the lore, really. <laughs> well, it, it's lore. It's just not, you know, Earth lore. Yeah. Um, well, uh, so kind of, you know, in closing, you know, the, the long way goblins have come from from previous editions uh, is interesting at, at the least. You know, what, it, what exactly makes a goblin... A goblinoid? Well, you just kind of, you know, you unfuzzied the situation for me. <laughs> but, you know, from a DM perspective, uh, they are fun and easily manipulatable uh, encounter, you know. Uh, bending to your narrative or, or tampering with some homebrew, especially if you're new, uh, adding your own flavor somehow or some way. You know, all, all these are, are all too easy to do with the goblin and, and likely why it's such a common fantasy encounter. You know, it's one of the first things you know the dm's allowed to put their own flavor on you know so it's uh it's it's definitely a fun encounter and and i think that you know like i said yeah, it's just the ways of versatility of the goblin you know it's 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 harder to have a, a campaign without goblins really you know and <laughs> uh um i i think they're definitely probably one of the more popular one of the more popular one shot and, and campaign uh, battle scenarios for like what you said you know is it is it maybe it's a, a bar brawl and there's four or five of them. maybe it's a, a whole coven and you know we're gonna spend the next four to five hours in combat mechanics so there's 30 of these sons of bitches you know <laughs> it, uh, it it varies depending on you know what type of game you're playing and, and also the fact that they're not they, they are becoming more common but they're not so common as good guys that kind of gives you a, a little creative freedom if you want to throw a friendly NPC in there or maybe you know, uh, 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 an arch nemesis of sorts or something. You know. But uh, anyway, I, I will hand it over to you. And I wrote a uh, one-shot for my wife when I was introducing her as well as one of the other players his wife wanted to try. And it was basically a role-playing game. That was the whole crux of it. But you always want to have the chance of a battle, so Goblin stole your coin first, you chased him down, and now there's a Goblin gang. Because they are just that easy to throw into a setting with pirates, and to have them steal. So, I mean, they're, they're wonderful, and I think that's the reason you don't see a lot of variations throughout the uh, editions, is because... Once you got to a certain point, there's not really a lot you could do to change them without having to completely rewrite the entire lore around it. Um, unlike some other creatures you may come across. Now, while I was doing the research on the goblin, it's probably the first time I've wanted to smack my head against a brick wall. And that's just because when you get into fey creatures, uh, fairies, gnomes, brownies, goblins, there is so much catch-all that 
when you start looking at the folklore, you'll find three different stories with different antagonists. And goblin became an umbrella term, basically. And then other stories use a more specific type. So, I tried to do my best to narrow it down to more goblin-centric rather than some of the uh, alternatives. But, I'll mention them in passing. Uh, so, the goblin comes from Germany and the British area. Uh, Gaul, so it carries German, French, uh, Britain, or the UK in general, as to actual proper goblins. Uh, there's discrepancy as to where the name came from. One idea is that it comes from uh, Gobelin, which is an old French word. And then uh, when the Normans conquered England and created Anglo-Saxon, it became uh, more goblin-based over there. In Germany, they have been called kobolds. Uh, yes, like the lizard creatures, however, they are not lizards. And then there's also the idea that it came from the Greek word kobalos, which means rogue. And I'm, I'm going to apologize right now for all my butchering of languages, but when you're trying to say words in the different dialects, especially so many that are so different, they're not going to come out the best. Uh, but what is described as a goblin is usually a fey creature, and some would consider an ugly fairy. Fairies are beautiful. If they're ugly, it becomes a goblin. And so I think that's where you start to get into the uh, discrepancies. It is usually short, uh, not green, usually kind of a pale color, and in a lot of areas found in caves. Uh, there are different types. Uh, usually they're mischievous and malevolent. Uh, the friendlier version is a hobgoblin. Not friendly as in it'll be your best friend, but just more likely to pull a trick rather than do anything to actually harm you. You also have what's called the red cap, which there's a 5e stat block for. And these are ones that say they get their hats the color red from soaking it in blood. So very violent style. And the thing with goblins is they are found worldwide. Uh, in the Andy Mountains, uh, which includes, there we go, which includes Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia, uh, they are called the Muki, and they are considered to be miners. They dress like miners, live in caves, and will trick and uh, eat children and such. And specifically one, children, not not just people, just specifically children. The idea is that they are a way uh, of getting people to baptize their children, because if you have an unbaptized child, the Muki will come out and steal your unbaptized child. Holy, so the only way to protect them. <laughs> 
And what they do with these children is either A, eat them, or B, kidnap them until they turn into goblins. And the skin of these end up being very pale. And as time went on, the clothing that the Mookie wore always looked like miners at the time. And when I say miners, I mean people who dig up gold, silver ores. And so you, you start to see a good, strong association even with dwarves, perhaps being a counterpart to the dwarf. In Korea, they are known as Dokebi and considered Korean goblins, and they are nature deities or spirits. These ones can be friendly, uh, helpful, but if you upset one, it will punish you for it. And so, uh, usually harmless, but mischievous playing pranks. And one thing they apparently like to do is, if you're traveling, they will challenge you to a wrestling match. And will not let you move any further until you beat them. Uh, and the secret to that is to attack the right side, where it's their weakest side. Or, in some tales, they only have one leg, so sweep the leg, Johnny. <laughs> that's kind of a, that's a weird twist on, on goblins. They just, the uh, tiny, tiny forest luchadors out there just ready to, ready to wrestle you at any point. <laughs> it really is, and it's just, you know, just the idea, and I think part of it just describes, you know, somebody comes walking out, tripped over a log or a tree root and doesn't want to embarrass themselves and oh what happened oh i got into a fight with the goblin yep that that's all it was it wasn't anything i did it wasn't because i'm uh clumsy or it's... drunk yeah <laughs> and then uh you actually could go down into africa with zulu mythology and you have what's called the tokolosh which is a mischievous and evil spirit uh, sometimes conjured up by a wizard to punish somebody and it says for them to create one uh, you have to promise the soul of one of your loved ones and you don't get to pick who for the tokolosh to go punish this person you want so you must be really pissed off at somebody to uh risk you know your significant other or a child or a family member's life to this thing yeah, damn, that was that was way darker than I mean. Okay, it was on the same level as like eating babies, but yeah. <laughs> if I had to choose, I think I'm going to to mess with the what did you say Japanese goblins? Yeah, I would I would rather wrestle a one legged eight year old than deal with any of that other shit. <laughs> it's a uh, Korean for that one, but with this right, one, um, they think what the idea came from. Uh, in the old days, the people slept on the floor of grass mats uh, around a wood fire to keep warm. However, what happened is, you know, the fire burned, it took out the oxygen, and left carbon monoxide on the floor level. So people would die in their sleep from carbon monoxide poisoning. So then it became the Tokolosh Tokum. Uh, and so when they found, you know, 
sleeping on a platform raised up above because carbon monoxide is a denser gas so it stays down and oxygen is lighter so it rises in the air so if you're sleeping on a elevated platform you're going to get the oxygen you need so it's the way to escape the tokolosh curse and you know just sleep on a bed basically and then we also have a goblin in the United States, uh, primarily on the East Coast, called the Pukwudgie, which is found in a Native American uh, folklore of the, uh, the Wampanoag tribes around uh, the Delaware area. They're said to be two to three feet tall, could disappear and appear at will, shapeshift, and its most common description is a humanoid with uh, porcupine quills on its back, looks kind of trollish, and walks upright, and will lure people to their death, use magic, launch poison arrows, and create fire. And so there's a tale that if you're walking uh, around the Delaware area, especially around marsh and boglands, and you hear your name being called, you do not answer it because it's a puckwudgie uh, trying to trick you into walking out there, getting stuck, and dying. And their tale is that the puckwudgies actually used to be friendly with humans, and then due to one reason or another, uh, developed a hatred toward humans. And so that's when they began kidnapping people, pushing them off cliffs, and, you know, just doing whatever they could to destroy you. <laughs> basically and an interesting thing is that the Pukwudgie is even in the harry potter universe uh in the pottermore area uh, jk rowling describes it as a native to america short gray-faced large-eared creature distantly related to the european goblin fiercely independent tricky and not over fond of humankind whether magical or mundane, it possesses its own powerful magic. Pukwudgies hunt with deadly poisonous arrows and enjoy playing tricks on human. And it's one of the names of the Ilvermorny school of witchcraft and wizardry to represent the heart of a wizard and favors the healers, which the Ilvermorny school is the American version of Hogwarts, basically. So the Pukwudgie definitely has some staying power in the United States, although a lot of people who aren't on the East Coast still had not heard of it. And so we're, we're seeing that the idea of a goblin, no matter its name, you know, they're all tricksters, they're all mischievous. I think part of the reason we have so many different names, though, is that as trade expanded, you know, somebody with, from a Germanic-speaking country comes over to a more Celtic or Latin area and hears a story. Says, oh yeah, that sounds like this creature we have. Your goblin sounds like our kobold. And then they go, oh, that's wonderful. You know, they must be the exact same thing. And then, you know, a storyteller might hear it and then they bring it back to their people, but they don't want to reintroduce, like, oh no, it's actually this. So they just 
change the story to fit their local. It's a goblin. It's a kobold. And that's why you get so many stories that uh, intermingle with each other. And so, as we're discussing stories, you know, the goblin's been around really since the 13th and 14th centuries. Uh, there was one story where goblins were actually helpful in a story called uh, The Benevolent Goblin. It had a drinking horn with an unknown liquid, and it would offer it to any knight. And whenever a knight drank it, whatever it was, they felt cool and refreshed automatically. One greedy knight, after taking a drink, stole the horn, and it was given to the King of England, and that goblin just never showed back up. And so, hey, who knows, maybe that's why goblins became such assholes, is somebody lost a drinking horn and said, well, you know what, you're going to steal it from me? I'm going to kill you for it. Uh, you then have the Goblin Pony, which is a French tale, where goblins, which were uh, minions of witches, would turn into horses or other creatures. And one day, uh, three grandchildren decided to ignore their grandma when she told them not to go out on Halloween because the goblins will be out and they could harm you. Well, they go out to pick, you know, thyme and blackberries, and they come across a black pony that ends up being a goblin in disguise, and decide to go for a ride. And then they pick up more kids, and no matter how many kids were on this pony, they all fit, and the horse never slowed down, until it ran into an ocean and drowned them all. And, I mean, that's when you start to see some of the more darker aspects. You then have the story of the princess and the goblin, which created an entire culture of evil goblins, malevolent, that are going to try and kidnap a princess to marry her off to their goblin prince in order to take over a kingdom. They are also then, if that doesn't work, they're going to flood the castle and kill everybody inside until they're stopped and uh, called ugly and a greenish color. And it's believed from here, J.R.R. Tolkien took the concept of the goblin and brought it over into The Hobbit. And so then you get into the story of The Hobbit and the goblin, where they are just evil by nature. They're not tricksters, they're not malevolent, they are just the definition of evil, to kill, to slaughter, gleefully, and again, they live in the earth in the dark, and then when he wrote Lord of the Rings, he changed Goblin into Orc, uh, pretty much a term he then coined, however, they were synonymous with each other, so the Orc is a goblin, a goblin is an orc. And I think it's in later iterations of storytelling that they started to really become separate things. Goblins becoming back to their diminutive short stature, orcs becoming their giant, bulky, strong as hell cousins. 
And then uh, when Dungeons and Dragons came out, uh, the first edition, and as stated in the Halfling episode, uh, they were sued to stop using certain names, and Hobbit being one, so they took that and changed it to Halfling. Well, they were also told to change dragons, goblins, and they said, well, no, I mean, yes, a Belrog is probably something that J.R. Tolkien came up with, so we can see why we would need to change that. The ant, okay, we'll change it to a tree ant, but elves have been around forever. You can't copyright that. It's public domain. The dwarf has been around forever. You can't copyright that. The goblin has been around forever. You can't copyright it. And so they ended up settling and they changed just a couple names, but the goblin remained. And so in looking at it, and as I said, there's just so many sources because you could take any of those tales I told and it's not a goblin, it's a hobgoblin. It's not a goblin, it's a red cap. It's not a goblin, it's, you know, a anything else that you really want. So you really can run a gambit with goblins. You can make them the malevolent, try to kill you in your sleep, steal your children and eat them, drown them in the ocean, or they're just assholes who sneak into your house, bang pots and pans, move your furniture while you're sleeping, and just, you know, keep you up. Yeah, and I one definitely more. like the mischievous out outlook on on that. You know, just move your furniture around, like <laughs> dick move, but but funny. <laughs> now there is one more goblin type that actually came up uh, a lot more recently. Uh, well, first let me describe. Uh, you know, and goblins of course show up in the Harry Potter verse, uh, not just the Pukwudgie, but in the Tales of, you know, Harry Potter, they become the bankers. They're still seen as subservient and lesser than wizards. Treated like, you know, basically crap in a lot of ways. And so that creates an animosity. They work with them, but not necessarily happy about it. And if you notice in the Pottermore, they're not green. They are pale, which it definitely follows more of their uh, original description. Pointy ears, sometimes matted hair, but the skin color. And one interesting one that I had come across is actually a uh, Greek one called the Calicantazaros, which is a goblin in Greek folk tradition. And the difference between this one is that it is said to live underground practically the entire year and what they are doing is they are attacking the roots of the world tree which if the world tree dies the entire world ends however for 12 to 14 days around christmas i believe it's about uh december 25th through january 6th the sun stops and the goblins are able to actually come to the surface and so they do and then they run pranks and miss deeds then and then on january 6th when they have to return back to underground 
the world tree healed itself during that time. And then they're back to step one. And so during that time, what was recommended is that uh, you would take a colander or a strainer, depending on where you're from, and put it outside. And when the goblins come to your doorstep, they see it, they have to sit there and count all the holes. But they can only count two, because three was a holy number, the holy trinity. So they would be able to only go one, two, one, two, one, two, and could not count the whole thing, therefore never enter your house. And really, counting is used on a lot of things. Uh, old vampire stories also had a, if you're being chased, throw a bunch of rice down, and a vampire has to stop and count them. They're like compulsively unable to do anything else until that. Uh, this, I think, is a definitely a more recent addition uh, because it specifies, you know, the, the Christmas time. So it would have to be post-Jesus. Uh, so you're looking at, if numbers are correct, about 33 CE, uh, when he would have died. However, Christmas and the birth of Jesus really wasn't uh, decreed by the Catholic Church until, I believe it was the first century, so the 100 to 200 CE. Both before they said, all right, December 25th is the birth. So that it deals with Christmas probably means this is a story from around, yeah, 3 CE. Uh, and then just given the goblin form uh, with the goblin name, because if the original name for goblins came from a Greek root, meaning rogue, and they're called something completely different, it just lends itself to not even in the same country where they're using the same word to describe these things until later on. So, that is a very muddled, short, and head-banging look at goblins and folklore. <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't lying. I could see why you were talking about banging your head up against the wall, but... Yeah, you definitely uh, you went above and beyond on this topic for sure. You definitely uh, went out there and found some. I'm still kind of stuck on on wrestling one-legged midgets, you know. So sweep the leg, Johnny. <laughs> I think that was pretty awesome. But yeah, there's definitely some dark versions of the goblins out there, and you know, all of it, you know, uh, is really good thought fodder. You know, uh, definitely you can incorporate a lot of that uh, in different ways into your campaigns, and you know, uh, like I had kind of said before. And you even said before, it really just comes down to being a very versatile type of creature, which is why it's such a common thing to find in, in the fantasy realms as far as encounters go, you know. Well, I mean, one issue I've seen described is that I haven't looked at the uh, Monsters of the Multiverse source book. But I know in various Reddit and Facebook groups that there was discussion of, oh, well, they're no longer being evil, but they're evil. Why would they get rid of that? And I think the truth is, is that they run a gamut. You have some that are more neutral. Yeah, they're tricksters, but they're not. I mean, if you wake up and your chairs got rearranged, you'll be pissed. But you couldn't, wouldn't really consider that evil. And then on the other hand, 
you have ones that will drown your children because it's Halloween night. Yeah, that seems a little evil, but but yeah, I get what you're saying. Uh, um, <laughs> Because uh, I call I call it the uh, the Drizzt uh, philosophy or the Drizzt theory, where you know Drizzt is this uh, dark elf, a drow that kind of escapes this evil society, and then uh, you know after uh, some time finds his way to the surface, and he's like shunned and and not well liked, and that's kind of like his tale is like for the first several books of of his you know, adventures, uh, he's considered a drow and nobody likes or trusts the drow so they're very guarded against it but it's like the very nature of of his being just kind of uh, rejects the overall evilness of his people and their deities and things and, and he struck out to be different you know and eventually you know he is kind of accepted but i i feel like that uh uh is kind of becoming like a, a more common narrative you know a lot of the uh you know because 5e is pretty inclusive uh and uh well as like uh as it kind of progresses you know you've uh you've definitely got to the point where characters uh are looking at you know different uh, backgrounds and things and that's kind of like a good way to to get some uh, a primarily evil character into maybe a good setting or a, a good party you know it's like what i call the drizzt theory or the drizzt situation <laughs> well i think what you also see is you know in the early everything was black and white you were good you were evil the end and one thing that i hope is being shown through some of these you know, episodes is that within folklore, it's a very gray area, just like it is in real life. There's no absolutes. And so the reason you're seeing a lot of the evil get rid of us, because kind of with the popularity of homebrew stuff is you don't have to make it this way. You can do whatever you want with it. You want to make goblins evil, make goblins evil. But you shouldn't have to be bound to them being evil. So they're just pretty much getting to a point of since alignment doesn't have a lot to do with uh, like magical items anymore. I believe it was what 3.5 and such that if a paladin did an evil deed, they were stripped of their magic right away. Because they were no longer good. The alignment mattered. Now in 5e, I mean, the DM can do that, but based upon the source book materials, that's not a requirement anymore. In fact, you have the Oathbreaker subclass. And so, because alignment isn't dictating as much what's going on in the world through the various magical items and tales and stuff it's why do we need it i mean yeah it's helpful for role-playing i'm going to be lawful and everything that entails figuring it out i'm going to be good neutral evil and what that entails and figuring it out for a role-play aspect but it's not such a requirement for this event to happen or that item to be used that when it comes to monsters they're they're monsters i mean kill them use them however you want they do not necessarily have to follow this specific alignment yeah and that that makes a lot of sense you know especially kind of uh 
uh, with the, uh, I don't know, the, the versatility of the goblin, it would only make sense that if it is like a coward and easily bullied creature that maybe uh, could be captured and bullied into doing good, you know? <laughs> it's totally possible. <laughs> yeah, what is it? Uh, this is our goblin pet, Gobby. <laughs> Exactly, and uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know uh, uh, what you had kind of presented about like the Harry Potter universe. That was interesting. I didn't, uh, I do kind of recall reading something about that, but I never, I didn't really tie it to like real world origins. That's that's pretty awesome, pretty clever. Once again, here you go, teaching me something. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I noticed the goblins, but I did not realize because uh, I didn't get go in depth with like Pottermore and stuff. I read the books, I watched the movies, but I didn't go deep dive. I didn't realize that she had actually mentioned the Pukwaji. And I think that's a good thing. It's good to bring in other cultures because things like elves, dwarves, goblins are just so universal. They're found everywhere. <laughs> That being it, that bringing in other culture versions of them just expands it, and also I think brings about you know we know there's different humans. You have uh, European, African, Australian, Asian, North American, South American. You know, we're all similar in a lot of ways, but we're also very different, especially when you get to a more cultural level. Well, now you're seeing a cultural level within the monsters as well. And, you know, that, again, from a gaming standpoint, can open up your whole world. Where you're from, the goblins are all evil and they're going to steal all your children and everything you have. You travel to the other end of the continent, well, these goblins are more friendly. You know, maybe they're like the dwarves, only shistier you know they'll uh sell you the gold dagger but for five gold more than a dwarf would and maybe of a shoddier construct but they're not out killing your children <laughs> right yeah i kind of i kind of like the uh um and some of the more, I guess, neutral to good goblins that I've listened to maybe on podcasts or experienced uh, throughout gaming myself uh, are usually, you know, some of the more interesting ones are like tinkerers or alchemists or, you know, because the goblin typically using its brain to outsmart its uh, larger, more aggressive goblinoid cousins kind of. Uh, in order to level the playing field, if you will, you know, it makes sense that the goblin would take advancements in like science and technology, maybe arcane type of situations and become a tinkerer, albeit maybe not the best one. You know, maybe uh, he's a bomb maker missing a few fingers or something. You know, it totally makes sense that uh, uh, they would create reckless and dangerous machinery or something, you know, <laughs> especially with the, uh, the player base for goblins kind of expanding, you know, it's more common to find a, a goblin character now than than in any of the previous editions. Uh, yeah, that, and that, so, I mean, that's ahead. all I have. I, I don't know if you have any questions, comments, or anything else you wish to discuss. Uh, nope, I think we're cutting it pretty close for time, but uh, once again, you definitely uh, taught me something. That, uh, what, say, that, say that again, the Maglubia, the, the uh, Harry Potter goblin. Well, the Harry Potter, 
the goblin is just the goblin of like green gods. Uh, and then the Pukwaji is the, the goblin like it's the goblin like uh from Native American folklore within the Delaware area. The Magugliet, I think that's pronounced right, is the god of war that uh conquered all the goblinoid or all the the bugbears, the goblins, the hobgoblin races and then grouped them all together to create goblinoids. And one question you did ask earlier was the kobold, if that was also a goblinoid. Quick look on D&D Beyond, it's a humanoid. So they were not a conquered people. And that, that would kind of explain why uh, orcs have been declassified, because a lot, I mean, maybe they're, they're, they're both. Maybe there are tribes of orcs that still worship Maglubiliet or whatever. But uh, maybe that's why orcs have kind of been declassified as strictly goblinoid, because uh, you know they have been shown other deities and and perhaps worship elsewhere. You know, kind of an interesting uh, uh, food for thought. Uh, do you have anything uh, you want to add in closing? Well, as usual, uh, if you have anybody has any questions, comments, concerns, or any topics that they would wish to hear sooner rather than later. You can email us at monstersandmythos at gmail.com. 